Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Us. You are right, he is not one of us. But we are not responsible to judge an enemy. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm dying. No, I'm Brian. I'm I'm uh, all vaxxed up and I'm sick. We got spit. But I'm also Brian. I'm fine. Hello. Today's episode is Never Be Game Over. Our final episode on Metal Gear Solid V focused on the game's many endings and allows us to present our thesis for this game's take on the video game power fantasy. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. I told them, last chance to face the world with no regrets. Last chance. You better be ready for your drag back here. Ready to face the world as enemies. <laughs> Father, I don't need you anymore. Eli's ending begins in side-ups following the capture of Sahelanthropus. Several of the Mbele child soldiers escape Mother Base, and Snake has to go out and retrieve them, not unlike Zerdornov in Peace Walker. After five of these missions, Miller and Ocelot figure out Eli was behind the escapes. They interrogate Eli, who's lounging in a folding chair, while Snake sits behind a two-way mirror. Eli asks after Snake, thinking of him as his father, but Ocelot says, he's not here. A lie, because Snake is here watching, but also a truth in that the actual big boss is not here. Which does Ocelot mean? Anyway, Eli turns the verbal daggers on his interrogators as Sahelanthropus crashes into the hangar. Eli jumps in, and we watch Mantis float Eli and the mech away. Nearby, the child soldiers had commandeered a chapter and fly away with Eli. This sets up the Kingdom of the Fly scenario a canonical part of the Metal Gear saga that was initially meant to be part of MGSV, but did not make the final product. A 2019 leak of the MGSV script showed Kingdom of the Flies was meant for DLC from a script dated from January 2015, but never came to fruition because of the Kojima-Konami fallout. We'll come back to that in a second. But to wrap Liquid's story, 
Eli with Mantis Sahelanthropus, the English vocal cord parasite strain, and the child soldiers, sets up shop on an island in the middle of a salt lake in the African theater Diamond Dog was running missions against. There, Eli had used the English strain to kill off all the XOF soldiers that came sniffing after him. The vocal cord parasites target adult vocal cords only, so the kids would be safe for a time. Then Eli teased Snake to come and get him. Eli would return Sahelanthropus and the nuke if he was given the body of Big Boss, the same demand Liquid will have at Shadow Moses and also in the Guns of the Patriots incident. All manners of shit go down when Snake arrives. XOF was already in an offensive against Eli, who had activated Sahelanthropus once again. Snake and Sahelanthropus would fight again, with Snake winning again, and Eli hurt in the process. XOF came for Eli, Snake stopped them, but shot Eli in the process. Eli lives, but is left behind as Diamond Dogs exfiltrates without him. He may be carrying the vocal cord parasite for English himself. Ocelot orders the island napalmed, and Eli is left with a gun to kill himself if he so chooses. Instead, Mantis appears one last time to lift Eli away and see. Live. Live. You're one hell of a soldier. I will kill you! That's right. Don't blame yourself. Blame me. It's a little interesting that uh, Eli is also given the choice to shoot himself or be napalmed. That doesn't come back at any point. It won't come back in this episode, for sure. Uh, But yeah, what do you think about just Eli's ending? We'll talk about the cut contact here in a second. I mean, it's good. It's... um. It's a little, you know, you get the feeling that there would have been more, like, uh, tapes with it. There have been more, like, backstory. Because I don't know if it's fully established that Eli actually knows what's happening. But it seems like he does. I've always thought that was weird. Like, with, with like, Venom and, and Ocelot and everybody. And uh, it's it's a little bit, like, I think part of the fun of his character in MGS is that he doesn't entirely understand what's going on. Like, he thinks he does. He considers himself, like, the king of the world and, you know, like, he's... Very arrogant, but he actually doesn't know like the specifics of like Fox Die, the specifics of, of Snake's mission, like all this stuff. He has to, that's why he has to use Snake to complete his objectives because he can't do them himself. And I don't know if I like the idea of like of Eli's of like of Liquid as like a Ocelot style, like playing sides against each other, agent provocateur type. He I think he works best as a megalomaniac. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think the way I read this is more Eli being slippery than kind of yeah, all-knowing. Yeah. Um, just like he's always able to get the slip, people underestimate him, and then he orchestrates this plan. But his plan isn't that, like, it's not like a mastermind plan to do this. He no. was just basically able to get Huey, um, and the child soldiers were already on his side, all things considered. Yeah, I like it. Like, it's a, it would have been a fun mission for sure, but... Uh... I think it's good. I don't think it's like great or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. It's not I don't think it's necessary for the story. Like we could talk about that, but I think the Eli's story still works without it. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice segue into what we're actually going to talk about here. The cutting of the Kingdom of the Fly sequence has many calling the Phantom Pain an incomplete game, in conjunction with some other cut content like say Adult Chico and the Battle Gear. 
we actually got a couple of emails, like the five emails we've gotten over the last two years, um, asking, uh, can you explain why Metal Gear Solid Five was never completed? Um, basically assuming that it is an incomplete game. So let me ask you, do you think MGSV is a complete game? I think it's a 95% complete game. So yes, functionally, yes, like it still works. Well, I mean, the obvious parallel is uh, Nice Little Republic 2 is not is also not finished, like to a larger extent to where like the last act, like the last two or three hours straight up like weren't done. Like they just kind of fly through it. And that's still, that game is still a, one of the best games ever made. It's still terrific, even though it's the last three to four hours of just kind of hamstrung, I guess is the right word. And like, it still is a complete game. It's a great game. It could have been, I guess the, the consternation people have, and I think I agree, is that it could, it, I would have liked to have also played this. I, you know, I don't think it would have made the game worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of cut content is cut for editorial reasons, and this obviously was not. And I think this was also, if, if the news about the DLC is true, which it should be based on the leak, yeah. um, that also kind of changes it. But this would also be really the first Metal Gear that's existing in an age of dlc content being like basically a standard i know revengeance has a little bit of it those are both very much like uh they're just extra content they're, they're not important at all they're like skins and like a couple vr missions kind of thing yeah the same one is a little more like i talked about when we the same one is worth playing but it's also it's still like 90 minutes long maybe mm -hmm. maybe two hours it's not like not substantial pieces of the story or anything so um, for me, the question is MGS be a complete game? I say yes. Narratively, while Kingdom of the Flies is Eli's ending, it is not really the ending of this game. Yeah, Eli's story may be unfinished, but the story works with or without Kingdom of the Flies. Big Boss, Venom Snake, Kaz, Ocelot, Huey, Quiet, Skullface all get their endings, each of whom is a more important character in the story, I'd say. Chapter 2 in MGSV works a lot like Chapter 5 in Peace Walker, as an epilogue to the main story that takes place in Chapter 1 for The Phantom Pain, or Chapters 1 through 4 for Peace Walker. Chapter 2 is a combination of some new missions, some repeat missions, and a lot of story that takes place in the side ops. And we've also cataloged through the entire saga that every game has tons of cut content, either due to hardware restrictions or just not fitting into the final vision of the game. Several bosses were cut from the first two Metal Gear Solid games. Escort Mission and Metal Gear Solid 4 are just some of the prominent examples. All games have stuff that don't make the final version. And there is really no lack of game here, especially for methodical Metal Gear gamers. There's 50 story missions in total and 157 side ops. 11 of those main missions are replays, but there's also 11 story missions in the side ops, so the numbers basically stay the same. To achieve all the objectives and S-Ranks, you'll need to play nearly every mission more than two times, sometimes just to keep earning GMP to level up weapons for other missions. I do think at some ex to some extent the game is meant to evoke a hollowness, like the empty husk of Big Boss that the player dons. The characters are more quiet, the world is more empty, we are supposed to feel the phantom pain of wanting more. It's exactly what Kaz says as Skullface is killed. He may be dead, but the lust for revenge, more violence, is not sated. We want more of this game, but to bring the forever war of outer heaven to life, war must become routine. Some of the repeat missions near the end specifically will tie into our final analysis, which I'll save. And I'll also say that I am wary that people may argue 
such and such game is incomplete intentionally as a way to defend a bad game. And I'm not trying to make that. I'm trying to argue more for some kind of hollowness or quietness to it. Um, not that being incomplete is the point of it. Also, uh, just as a quick aside, uh, I mean, this game, I guess it was post Gamergate, but like really the entire landscape has been like, it, it's, it's oversaturated with uh, like review bombing and like, and, it, and not even like review bombing. Like, there's some review bombing that is just straight up racist garbage. Like, it's just a black person's in this game, one out of 10, that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. But there's some review bombing. Like, I really have a problem with a great example is uh, when Dishonored 2 launched on PC, it didn't work for like two or three weeks. And so it got like, I, I don't believe in giving a game, if the game is having issues launching, that's like going to a movie theater and the movie reel breaks and you're like, that movie sucked. Like it has nothing to do with the content of the, the art. It's just that the means of conveying it to you weren't working properly. It doesn't have anything to do with the game being bad. I, I really hate that that kind of games getting one out of 10 scores because there's like a patch that doesn't work. Like that has nothing to do with the game itself. Mm-hmm. And this game is a little bit before that was really happening, but there is, you see a lot of that in discussion online about it of like, Let's say it's a two-hour mission. Oh, this one two-hour mission wasn't put in. The whole game sucks. It's like that's not a way to consume art. That's a very nihilistic way to consume art, really. Like that's I don't I don't agree with that in any way. And like I would also my, my other rebuttal to that would be that uh, most games don't have good endings. This one's is is solid. It's pretty good. Like it's solid. I like that pun. I was just gonna say. I think another thing is also that this game. I wouldn't call it new, but it's still kind of fresher in people's minds. Like I had yeah. no idea Codor Two was considered, or there was some people who considered an incomplete game, or like. Well, to be fair, in that case, the people who made it considered it incomplete because they okay. had to make uh, it. It the first one released in July two thousand three. The second game is made by Obsidian. It's not even made by the same development crew, and it released in December two thousand four. So okay. They were just kind of forced to throw it out there. They have said we we would have liked like six more months to finish that game. I see. But that has happened. There's a fan mod that it reinstalls a lot of the content that is unfortunately only available on Steam, but it's great. It's It took them – they were working on it for like 11 years before it actually released, and it's wonderful. I'm very happy those people did that, but that's not – yeah, that's more – I think my point was like that is like an, an incomplete game. That is a game that was not allowed to be finished. This is a finished game that that lost some post-credits DLC basically, mm-hmm. which is very different to me. Uh, I just gonna say, I wonder if like 18 years after the Phantom Pain, like if the incomplete game is still going to be part of the narrative, just because that seems I have friends who talk about Corridor all the time. I podcast with one right now, um, and I this is honestly the first time I'd heard that the devs had thought it incomplete. So maybe like in 10 years from now, no one will consider the Phantom Pain like that. Yeah, I think I think part of that is that people um, generally don't talk about two. I just don't think as many people played it, even ah, though okay. it's it's the single smartest piece of Star Wars media. Uh, with the caveat that I haven't watched Andor yet, and I'm going to watch all of it, and I'm sure it's great. But like, Kotor Two is the single most intelligent and like cogent uh, Star. Like, it's the most philosophically interesting Star Wars media, I think, by a huge margin. Like all the stuff. This is really on a tangent, so I'll just wrap it up. But all the stuff people liked about Last Jedi is stuff that Kotor Two did much better. <laughs> uh, Thirteen years before, so.
Quiet suffered some serious burns at Mother Base, saving Shabani's necklace in a mix-up with Eli and the kids. Infirmed at Mother Base, Miller and team discovered that she had some strain of the vocal cord parasite. They also found a flower petal burned into her lungs, a star of Bethlehem petal, the flowers that filled that field where Snake fought the boss in Metal Gear Solid 3, and specifically a stray petal from the flower in Venom Snake's hospital room. Miller and Ocelot now know that Quiet was the XOF assassin sent to kill Big Boss in Cyprus. They interrogate Quiet, trying to get the truth from her. She holds up well against most forms of torture, but salt water on her skin prevents her from breathing. Quiet keeps to her namesake, but Ocelot surmises Skullface sent her to kill Big Boss, but was converted to Snake's side in the process. Code Talker would later talk to her in Navajo, learning that Skullface had given her the English parasite so she could kill Big Boss and all of Diamond Dogs, but she chose silence instead. This gets us to A Quiet Exit, a main mission that starts with a side op to find Quiet, who had escaped from Mother Base and returned to Afghanistan. Snake goes back to Central Asia to find her, where he learns she's been captured and is being held at Lamar Kate Palace. Code Talker reveals the rest to Kaz and Snake here. They've been noticing mutations of the vocal cord parasites at Mother Base's quarantine platform, mutations that were killing regardless of speech, and Quiet wanted to get far away before hers mutated and started harming Snake. When Snake finds Quiet, she's being tortured, but her Soviet captors foolishly dunk her in fresh water, recharging her and allowing her to break free. She kills all the nearby soldiers in gnarly, quiet fashion when Snake shows up to lend her a hand. Good thing, too, because a heavy tank unit comes in. Seven tanks and seven all-terrain vehicles, plus support troops and a chopper, to take on the two of you. I feel like I had been... It was it's intense and it's fun, but it, I, I had definitely crested the difficulty curve at this point i was just like firing rockets at them casually like wasn't much of a challenge i did i think i did die on it because i was being a little too aggressive like i was running out and like fight like look at me i'm untouchable because that's how you get to these games especially this game you get to the point where you're like i, I could kill Salhanthropus in a minute i'm not i no one could hurt me but uh it, it's not like i feel like if i had not spent so much time replaying a lot of the earlier missions and just kind of blown through them, it would have been at a better spot on the difficulty curve. But it's great. I I, I had a lot of fun with it. It's still a good a good fight. There's a couple of things. First of all, when you're first playing it through the first side up to find quiet and then it goes right into the main mission, it doesn't take you back to the mission select screen. Yeah. You might not be super well equipped that first time. Um because usually if I don't expect uh heavy artillery, which I wouldn't in the side op. Um, I go in with a sniper rifle and not a rocket launcher. And then once Quiet breaks free, she gives you a rocket launcher, but it's a pretty level down one, which isn't super useful against these tanks and troops. It is one of the missions where you're just constantly under fire. You're just going to get hit. Yeah, yeah. I would. It was the last mission that I had to complete all the objectives on because one of the optional objectives is to extract all seven tanks and all seven ATVs. Um, and it's almost impossible to run around and do that and survive without having the parasite armor on. And you have to have that almost fully leveled up because I had to use every one of my armor infusions. I think you get like eight uh-huh. um, to go into the mission. And I had to use them all to like run around like a madman and try to um extract all the tanks so um that was the very last objective of all the missions in this game that i had to complete because i had to level up 
the rocket launcher and the parasite armor to full strength to even do that objective. And I think I had either, maybe I did just get wiped out the first time through, and that's what I'm remembering. And then I came back a sec- the second time, fully kitted out. But once I was like fully armor armored up in this mission, it wasn't much. I won't say it wasn't a challenge, but it was like a, it, it didn't have the desperate, like flailing feel that I think they were going for. And that's my fault. That's not the game's fault. They beat back most of the unit, but Quiet gets rocked by a tank shell at the end and is rendered unconscious. Snake tries to get her out, but a sandstorm prevents exfiltration, and eventually he tires carrying her away from harm. They hide behind a rock, but a Soviet column passes by and a troop comes snooping. A cobra, king of snakes, distracts the troop away, but another cobra shows up to bite Snake, who collapses from poison and exhaustion. Quiet comes to and tries to get Snake up. When that fails, she hails Pequod, but the sandstorm is still ripping through and the chopper cannot find them. Quiet tries to communicate in Navajo, but since the pilot doesn't speak the language, she has no choice but to finally speak English. The boss is with me. Wait, who is this? Identify yourself. There's no time. Hurry. From us. Circle back to your eight o'clock. Copy that. Guide me to your location. Proceed to your ten o'clock. Understood. Come back towards your one o'clock. Copy. One o'clock. Shift slightly to your left. Now proceed straight. 1.5 miles. Slide right. A little more. Yes, there you go. One more mile. Strong winds approaching. Quick, adjust to your right. Quiet guides the chopper to Venom Snake, but by the time he comes to, Quiet is nowhere to be seen. Pequod hangs around while Snake follows nearby footprints to a lone tree in the desert. From it hangs a single cassette, Quiet's Goodbye, which we'll play for you here. Vengeance was what drove me to them. The only language left to me, revenge. But the words we shared 
has no language at all. That is why I chose the language of gratitude instead and go back to silence. I am quiet. I am the absence of words. And so passes quiet, a goofily conceived character with a really heartbreaking and solid ending. A meaningful sacrifice and a nice counter to the ideas of language and revenge being discussed by other characters. She was the weapon of mass destruction that chose not to be. Probably could have worn a shirt, but who knows. Brian, your thoughts on Quiet's ending. Do you regret your deeds and actions? Or words and actions? I sure do. Uh, yeah. I mean, a little bit. I do like the story, like I said. I don't know. Um, you know, she probably could have worn more clothes at some point. <laughs> um, this but- is the, well, this is specifically the thing he was talking about when he made that when he made that statement that this story would make you feel ashamed of your words and deeds talking about quiet in the twenty fifteen. And I don't know if I feel that, but I mean, it's a classic Kojima thing where it's a very interesting story, an interesting character filtered through the lens of the of a man who has the brain of a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, I think they were going for a little bit of a parallel with the boss as someone who laid their gun down. Yeah. But uh, like you said, there's a lot of aesthetically going on that it's hard to get over to find the actual like value in the story. So, um, But I think it's cool. I like the sound clips we just played for you. I think uh, Stephanie Houston gives a great performance when she's actually um, giving a vocal performance on top of the physical performance. So... Um, I like the ending, if nothing else. Yeah. And I like that it's called A Quiet Exit. It's a very appropriate named mission. A lot of the mission names are great. I'll say that. Hamburgers. Uh, hamburgers. Even we didn't have become Americanized. I eat them often back home. <laughs> and you just can't let them go. Well, as far as symbols of the American Empire go... Hamburgers are pretty good. The victory of capitalism. Hmm. Your people suffered so much at the hands of America. And you asked for hamburgers. We have suffered more than you can know. But I do not see hamburgers as an accomplice. A single dish providing a balanced helping of nature's blessings. Meat, grain, and vegetables. How could anyone hate such a magnificent thing? Says the guy who can survive on photosynthesis. Balance has nothing to do with it. You just like a good burger. That is also true. Be warned, though. I have very high standards. (sighs) Don't worry. I do, too. How about some lighter fare after that? Say, fast food fare? Code Talker and Cos Miller's plots intersect in Endgame, a great little farce amongst the darkness of all the other endings. While Code Talker subsists via parasites like Quiet, he does enjoy hamburgers, a perfect way to appreciate all of nature, grains, veggies, meat, dairy, all in one bite. Cos begins making burgers for Code Talker, who is quite picky about them, critiquing Cos's technique as he tries to modify the recipe to please the old Dinay. Through these tapes, we learn that Kaz has a secret burger chain franchise he's been funding under the table with Diamond Dog's money, really playing on that McDonald in his name. 
Using Code Talker as his test taster, he invents Miller's Maxi Buns with some chemical additives added to his all-natural burger. With this, he's able to mass-produce and distribute globally. He could even cure African hunger. Kaz speaks about his burgers like Skullface talks about nukes, and ultimately is another avenue in which Kojima inserts his commentary about capitalism, neoliberalism, and how silly the spread McDonald's, not war, mentality of the end of history truly is. But also, it's a nice palate cleanser from the darker and heavier story endings in this game, like the one we'll talk about in a minute. I want everyone to eat that fucking hamburger. (laughs) That's my takeaway from this. Man, that sounds good. I had a hamburger yesterday, and I thought about this. It's great. I that's one of the ones I I, I kind of went through the tapes piecemeal. I think that's one of the few that I just burned right through because it was funny and interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's a great ending for Miller, and that it's sort of meaningless and ignored, like Miller. Inside managed to isolate the parasite behind the outbreak. He faxed over his findings. Code Talkers analyzing them now. Why this new outbreak, despite our inoculation? This is still unclear. Introducing the Wolbachia to the infected prevented symptoms during the last epidemic. The parasites lodge in the victim's throat, forming a mating pair. But the Wolbachia turns the male to female. Two females can neither copulate nor lay eggs. That's why the rescue team went in with more Wolbachia. But the outbreak still isn't under control. They should not be capable of laying eggs. Yet, we have a new outbreak. And the Molbachia have no effect. I pray this is not some new strain. If it is, then someone may have brought it here. If there's a spy running around. For now, we must focus on discerning the outbreak mechanism. The cases show another alarming new development. It is now even more difficult to tell who is infected. The eggs propagate out of sight. No external symptoms. One who appears healthy may be dying on the inside. What the hell happened in there? Next up is Shining Lights Even in Death. As mentioned earlier, those recovering from the vocal cord parasites were suddenly getting sick and dying again. The Wolbachia was no longer holding down the outbreak, and footage from the quarantine platform showed the infected attacking like zombies. This new outbreak was unconnected to speech or speaking a specific language. Huey is alleged to be behind the mutation, just as he will be in helping Eli escape with Sahelanthropus. We'll get there in a minute. Let's talk about this mission first. The quarantine platform has been locked down, and Snake enters with a gas mask. At the top of the platform, he acquires goggles, which allows him to tell which soldiers are infected. Turns out, it's all of them. And not only that, the parasites are making them want to break free into the outside world, where they could become a feast for crows, who in turn will carry the parasites back to the mainland and continue the spread. Basically, the player has to go around and execute every comrade they see. It's a vicious, violent stage, a betrayal of Snake's words to his men and to Eli earlier in the game, never turn your weapon on a fellow soldier. Big Boss was viewed as a savior to these people, someone to carry them off to outer heaven, but sadly, there's no room for angels in this heaven. 
There's even an ironic bit where some of the infected soldiers are listening to a tape of the Peace Walker theme song. You know, that triumphant tune from Big Boss at the height of his power? Oh yeah, this is just one big joke, one that has everyone dying. You can recover the Peace Walker tune for your Walkman as well here, adding another chuckle to this whole thing. Snake is a demon, the literal devil. The cutscene at the end shows Snake walking down the halls, becoming progressively more bloodied, as if he's bathing in it. His horn grows too, and the Diamond Dog logos are smothered in blood. Corpses lie everywhere, and Snake collapses to his knees and yells. This game began in a hospital wing, the rebirth of V, and here it ends in another hospital wing, an ego death. Well, and it's sort of in a hospital, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love, it was, I can't remember at what point during the first time through I realized this was the mission from the trailer where he's walking, and he's covered in blood, mm-hmm. which was the thing I think everyone was looking for. Well, looking forward to is strong, interested in seeing, like, what happens there? What is that? And yeah, the, the bit where the guys, the whole in the basement, I think it is, where uh, the guys listen to the Peace Walker tape just allow Boss to do what he wants, and they just weakly try to salute him, is like, as, as much as this has been memed, uh, which we could talk about, like, and as much as it's kind of a silly, like, I, it's, a, it's a classic Metal Gear thing, because I think from the outside with no context, it just seems insane and silly, and on the inside, it's like, fucked up and heartbreaking. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's a classic, like, I think if you were to show someone the boss's, like, not necessarily her death, but the big talk they have before the, the boss fight, I think people would think it was silly. But if you get the entire context of that whole game before it, it's it's the most serious, like, dour thing in the whole series, probably. Yeah. And this is, this is definitely that level of, uh, it's the thing from this game I think of the most, honestly. It's, I would say it's the signature mission of the game, aside from maybe the hospital extraction. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think if I would think. Yeah, um, the only thing that would maybe come close is uh, OKB Zero just because of the Skullface yeah. Jeep chat. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I, I would say those three are the clear winners and you would just have to pick which one you think makes the most of those three. Um, and it's cool that it's a mission that isn't really a mission. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely like story and narrative driven, but it's fully you playing it, you discovering stuff. Because this could... This could have been a cutscene. This could have been an email. Uh, but, you know, it's actually more powerful that you have to go through. And if you think about how we talked about Metal Gear Solid 3, that technically if you play non-lethally and Snake doesn't really kill anyone in a cutscene, um, like he kills no one and then has to kill one person at the end. And here you are kind of at the end of Big Boss's yeah. journey or his Phantom. And here you are just slaughtering everyone. The way I played, I just played, I literally just played this because I wanted to make sure I replayed it. I haven't replayed everything, but I had to do this. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of concerning how you you hesitate. The first the first guy, I definitely hesitated. I, even after that cutscene where he shoots those people, you hesitate. And then you just kind of slowly don't, as you're making your way back through, you just start, like, you don't want to listen to people beg anymore. And you just start executing them as soon as you see them. And it's like... It just sort of ramps up and up and up, and then you get that guy at the end. It's really sad. Uh, that that's the saddest guy to me, like that who just knew what was going on and accepted it, and you just execute him right like three feet from the exit. Yeah, it's great. It's a great bit. It's it's a great bit. Uh, <laughs> it's a great section of the game, and it really it really does like. Oh yeah, the, the idea. It, it's a, it's another perfect Metal Gear scenario because it. it Again, you have to physically do pull the trigger and do this, but also it 
as as I said to you earlier, the uh, UI contributes to it because you get the staff member has died notification every time you kill someone, and it just mm-hmm, becomes mm-hmm. like a chain. Like it just builds and builds and builds to where you I, you kind of forget how many people you end up killing. It's really some dark shit. I don't know. And you see, uh, we talked about the heroism points and demon yep. points very briefly. Um, like you see those racking up. It's not like, oh, because you have to kill people on this mission, they're not going to, you know, discredit you. It's like, no, every one of these kills matters just as much as if you killed them out in the field. Yep. And it, like the first time through, um, because you can only really tell who is infected by if they're like actually physically attacking you or someone else. Yeah. So you're kind of hesitant and you try to play it conservatively and then you get the goggles at the top and you work your way back down and it takes you a, fr- a second to realize, oh, it's everyone. Yeah. Like coming back to this mission, I knew like I could just go in and just kill everyone because everyone's infected, but that doesn't make me feel great either. That even that almost makes it worse. So yeah, it's it's very interesting mission and one that even on replay, it's still emotionally affecting almost in a different way. We cut to a scene of many burning coffins, similar to when the first outbreak at Mother Base occurred, but this time Snake is in front and center watching the bodies. Their cremated pals are about to be released into the ocean, when instead Snake stops short. He rubs the ash on his face and says they'll take their fallen comrades into battle with them. They believed in the Live Moss lifestyle. They should be the literal diamonds these dogs of war carry into battle. I won't scatter your sorrow to the heartless sea. I will always be with you. Plant your roots in me. diamonds from their ashes. Take them into battle with us. A shining light to our brothers in arms, even in death. So, like, all of this is Huey's fault, allegedly. Technically unconfirmed, but the pieces all add up. He brought in a device whose beta rays caused the parasites to mutate, which he denies. He denied killing Strangelove as well. He was further accused of betraying Mother Base nine years ago, which he also denies. In front of a kangaroo court of diamond dogs, Ocelot judges him guilty. While I do believe in Huey's guilt, it does also serve Diamond Dogs to have one figure they can blame for all that happened after Skullface was defeated. He's an avenue for sating revenge. 
Huey is ordered into exile by Snake, put on a raft in the Indian Ocean with food and water, but without his mechanical legs. It is interesting that I think um, if this had been the first thing, the first mistake Huey had made, they probably wouldn't have exiled him. Like if, let's say, Code Talker made this mistake, they would be like, oh, they would be mad. But it, it's yeah, it's it's definitely a culmination of just they're just getting this guy the fuck out of there. They're getting that guy out of their company. They hate him. Mm-hmm. Like, just get him, get him out of here. We don't like this guy anymore. We hate him too. And 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 deservedly so, because again, Huey sucks. Huey's a bad. Although I, I do, um, I wonder if it's meant to be uh, Huey's guilt. Like he knows he's he's somewhat responsible for this, but he is the only person who really is effect- like takes issue with Snake just executing everybody. Maybe that's a commentary on how he's actually a coward and doesn't understand what it takes to to live this lifestyle. But like. I also think it just makes him more annoying. <laughs> like yeah, it's like yeah. supposed to be like this is the guy. Like I don't feel good about this, but I don't want to hear it from Huey about it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Which is a really interesting way to frame it because you would assume, you really would assume. I think. I mean, I don't think I know. Peace Walker Miller would have would have been begging you to find another way, but Phantom Pain Miller doesn't give a shit anymore. He's he's past caring about that stuff. He just wants he just wants it to be over. He doesn't. He's a. Uh, Somebody has to die here. And so he, he, it's Miller. I mean, Miller drops the bomb on them, drops an napalm on them when they get out to the platform originally. Mm-hmm. Before Snake even really kills anybody, Miller's just like slamming down that throttle. Let's go. Let's kill everybody. What a great character. I love Miller. He's the worst. Back in episode 63, we discussed the opening to The Phantom Pain, the pre-title sequence showing a mirror surrounded by weapons, gunfire ringing somewhere nearby. Just another day in a war without end, Outer Heaven, flashes on screen, and a bionic hand plays a tape labeled, From the Man Who Sold the World. In that episode, also named The Man Who Sold the World, we explained the Big Boss deception, and both endings with Venom Snake heading to Afghanistan and Big Boss going into hiding to begin nation building. What we left out from that discussion was the final scene after Big Boss lights up his cigar and rides off on his motorcycle. The return to this mirror sequence from way back when, or in the words of the song, a long, long time ago. In walks Venom Snake, gunfire and rockets still ringing loudly outside. His hypnotherapy has been wearing off, and his sanity starting to fray. There's optional side content where you recover photos of Paz, thinking she's alive in the medical ward, a delusion, a lingering phantom pain imprinted on him. It's what causes Snake to freak out and shoot Eli on accident during the Kingdom of the Fly scenario as well. 
Snake stares into the mirror, but the face staring back at him is not that of Big Boss. It's the face you created in the hospital bed, your character avatar, the face of the medic from Ground Zeroes. We flash back to that game, relive the bomb blowing up, relive stepping in front of the real Big Boss to save him from the blast. Snapping back to reality, Snake puts a cassette tape into the Walkman and presses play. Big Boss's voice greets him. Now do you remember who you are, what you were meant to do? I cheated death thanks to you. And thanks to you, I've left my mark. You have too. You've written your own history. You're your own man. I'm Big Boss. And you are too. No, he's the two of us together. Where we are today, we built it. This story, this legend, it's ours. We can change the world and with it the future. I am you and you are me. Carry that with you wherever you go. Thank you, my friend. From here on out, you're a big boss. Venom Snake smirks, then takes the cassette out, flips it over, and puts it into a Sony Bitcorder. The label reads Operation Intrude N313, Solid Snake's first mission to infiltrate Outer Heaven and defeat its leader. Big Boss steps back in front of the mirror now, his face fully covered in blood and his horn as extended as it gets. He punches the mirror, a cloud of smoke filling the air behind him. The unit insignia, formerly showing the Diamond Dogs logo, now displays the skull of Outer Heaven, Skullface's meme of revenge made real by Big Boss's copy. Venom Snake, or Big Boss if you'd prefer, turns around and walks out of the room to face Solid Snake at the end of Metal Gear 1987 on the MSX. Just to color in some extra details, from 1984 through 1995, Venom Snake played the role of Big Boss publicly, while the real thing was nation-building, aka building his fortress in South Africa. As it was nearing completion, Big Boss decided to draw attention away from Outer Heaven by returning to the U.S. in official capacity to lead Foxhound, while Venom Snake was moved into Outer Heaven as executive officer. I believe that squares us with the timeline and closes the loop on this franchise. In our next episode, our penultimate episode, we will regurgitate the Metal Gear timeline in full to you, a handy one-episode guide to the events of Metal Gear. But we're not done yet today. It's not over yet, Snake. First, let's talk about some of the questions and or answers regarding the Venom Snake reveal. I'll ask them to you in turn, Brian, and then I'll answer. The first one is, did Venom Snake or Big Boss trigger the Outer Heaven Uprising of 1995? That's got to be Venom, I believe. Like, that's the only one that really makes sense to me. He, at this point, you got to wonder, too, I wonder, um, you got to wonder, too, I wonder, interesting syntax. Uh, what, how much, did, like, were they still in communication at this point? After the conditioning breaks, does, does Big Boss just call him up and be like, hey, man, how's it going? You want to do this for me? Because, I mean... I feel like he could. I feel like if Venom is willing to accept losing 20 years of his life, pretending to be someone else, and then and then literally literally losing his life, I feel like Big Boss could just 
call him up and tell him to do this, do that. Mm-hmm. But my assumption is, is Venom for the Outer Heaven Run Uprising. I think that probably goes hand in hand with actually the next question. I probably should have ordered these around is, do you think Big Boss wanted Venom Snake to kill Solid Snake or the other way around? I think if Big Boss wanted Venom Snake to kill Solid Snake, it's just like he wanted to keep Outer Heaven Uprising or just keep Outer Heaven as a thing. And if he wanted Solid Snake to defeat Venom Snake, that might be because Venom Snake was out of control, perhaps, um, like doing his own war crimes outside yeah. of Big Boss's you know, authority or purview or something like that. I don't know. I it's it's an interesting question. I don't think there's a definitive one, but it's one that I still turn over in my head. Like, what did he truly want? Um, who did he want to survive? Because the, there can only be one snake and one boss, right? Um, who did he want to live? Well, I think he. Could, I think we can insinuate that if definitely Big Boss would think if Solid Snake can't defeat Venom, then there's no point to him. Like, if he can't take this guy out, then he's not going to be useful for me for my future plans. Like he can't take down the Patriots if he can't take down one questionably competent uh, copy of himself, like, mm-hmm. or even just himself. Like, if he can't kill me, I couldn't defeat the Patriots. I couldn't stop this from happening. So if he, he's not better than if he's not better than I am, there's no hope. So that's probably that's where I think I, I fall on that. But it is interesting to to wonder that if he if he thought that Venom would win, what was the plan? Mm-hmm. Like, was Venom just going to continue? I mean, maybe, honestly, maybe Venom was supposed to be what Liquid Ocelot ended up being. Oh, that's interesting. Just a lightning rod to draw out the Patriots so so Big Boss could kill them. Or if he knew what they were, I'm sure he knew what they were at this point, could, could quote unquote kill them. Mm-hmm. Or get zero. That was also a possibility. Yeah, and you wonder, maybe Big Boss going to the U.S. while keeping everyone's eyes trained on South Africa might allow him, because we know Zero was essentially living in the U.S., I think like Hell's Kitchen, to be honest. Hell yeah. Uh, Big Boss didn't know that, but maybe he was returning to the U.S. because he wanted to do that specific thing or get closer to the source or anything like that. Um, Imagine like Big Boss infiltrating the Pentagon while everyone's like trying to infiltrate Outer Heaven on the other continent. That could be a fun side mission or game or something like that. I guess the yeah never mind. I was gonna say if if Venom was publicly living as Big Boss, people would have already known. But but yeah, as you said, him him kind of stepping up and coming to the U.S. publicly sort of probably refuted that intelligence and made people question. I don't know. It's oh yeah, no, that's a not, good. It's base. not seamless. It's not seamless. But you can definitely throw off the intelligence agency. It's like it's possible Big Boss is behind it. Wait, no, Big Boss is standing here right behind me. Um, so it's 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 a fun. Yeah, I think it's more just a fun question to ponder than I'm really concerned with what the right answer is. Um, But I kind of just like that it's in there. The last one um, that I'll ask is, do you think characters like Sniper Wolf or Vulcan Raven knew the real Big Boss or knew his copy? And with the Sniper Wolf thing, I think everyone comes back to her referring to Big Boss as Saladin. What we know from Konami Media, so not Kojima directly, is that she was rescued by Big Boss in 1991 from a Kurdish refugee camp. Um, As in, she was rescued by someone who is Big Boss, whether it's the real or the phantom. But that's kind of the timeline we have working with in terms of when she'd be found. I honestly, I have no, I have no strong opinion either way. Like it makes because even if even if she was being lied to, I mean, it's still one of the themes of this game is that. Venom Snake is still a good enough leader that he still draws people to him. Like, it still doesn't really matter. I'd like to assume it was Big Boss because I think the idea of Big Boss, the real Big Boss, is like a lone mercenary traveling the world recruiting allies. Sounds awesome. 
but yeah, it doesn't really matter. I think that could be either. Yeah, um, I kind of like the idea that um, bi- the real big boss found these other uh, folks. So like Venom Snake ha- yeah. assembled half a Foxhound and Big Boss assembled the other half. Um, but I again, I don't, from Sniper Wolf or Vulcan Raven's perspective, I don't think it matters. It's simulation theory, Beaujolard. Like, mm-hmm. if the end result is the same as if it was the other one, does it matter? No, I yeah. Like if a hypochondriac, if, you, if you're sick and you have someone who's a hypochondriac who is also sick, or who's who's reflecting your symptoms that it doesn't functionally you are both sick like it doesn't really matter yeah no i think that's a very good way to look at it For every game we've covered, we have ended with a summary episode going over the game's settings, its commentary on imperialism, and the game's take on the video game power fantasy. For V, we shook things up a bit. We covered the settings of Cuba, Cyprus, Afghanistan, and Africa as they've come up. We did our big foray on the imperialism of language in the previous episode when Skullface drops his philosophical SoundCloud and Snake's replies. So that leaves us with the video game power fantasy the final discussion in our final episode on the final Metal Gear Solid title. In the past, we've spoken about how Kojima has used non-lethal play and pacifism to challenge the male power fantasy of killing everyone, how he's incentivized it with bonus items or troops to recruit for Militar Sans Frontiers, or sometimes just not killing for the existential moral play of not being a murderer. And there's a lot of these genes baked into MGSV, as you'd expect. Non-lethal play is still extremely incentivized. It's the easiest way to work through maps, as sleepy and stunned soldiers draw less suspicion than dead ones. And those neutralized soldiers can be brought back to Mother Base, a la Peace Walker, where they can swell the ranks of Diamond Dogs, improving Snake's combat team, R&D unit, etc. This game tracks your non-lethal play by heroism points, which you will see tallied at the end of each mission, and demon points, a hidden mechanic that tracks how much of a war criminal you are. You do not see a tally for this, the game keeps track of it on the down low, but if you hit 20,000 demon points, Snake's horn will grow, becoming Horn Snake, and 40,000 demon points will see you permanently bloodied as Demon Snake until you lower your demon score. With blood covering Snake, flies will gather around the player and he will give off a stink, making him easier to find by enemy troops, another disincentive against killing. Actions like killing soldiers, prisoners, animals, your own teammates, or letting Diamond Dog or Quiet get critically hurt will add demon points to your total. If you decide to develop a nuclear weapon at the end of game, that's a whopping 50,000 demon points that will most likely render you into Demon Snake. Extracting animals, soldiers, prisoners, and the like will lower your demon point total in addition to adding to your heroism score. MGSV also builds off how MGS2 challenged the power fantasy, namely by denying you the chance to play as the real big boss, as Jack, as the guy we knew from Operation Snake Eater and Peace Walker. The deception here is possibly more hollowing out than in 2. 
Unlike that game, the player must consume the entire narrative before realizing they are not the real big boss, notwithstanding some major hints along the way. The player learns the truth at the end, and it's up to them to think if the reveal that they weren't actually controlling Big Boss stings in the same way having to control Raiden did. Does it make you feel like you wasted your time? Like you wanted to control the real Big Boss instead? It's the same question but carries a different weight when you're 60 hours into a video game instead of two like Sons of Liberty. But of course, the real Big Boss is in the eye of the beholder, as this game makes plain at the end. Big Boss becomes a manifestation of the Ship of Theseus riddle. If you take pieces away from Big Boss and use them to build a new copy, a phantom of him, is that new version Big Boss, or is it still the old one? The answer is neither are Big Boss. Both are Big Boss. The hero and the villain, the world's greatest soldier and a demonic war criminal. No victory, no defeat. The ultimate doublespeak, save for the game's final moments. He loved Big Boss. Ultimately, that's what the challenge of this game was. There are two big bosses inside of you. One is the hero of Selino Yarsk and legendary revolutionary, and the other a warlord big boss, the one who triggers nuclear threats in the late 90s that Solid Snake must go and defeat. Kojima's task was to bridge the two ideas of big boss, treating them as a dialectic and finding the synthesis in between. This is where the extreme and replay missions at the end matter, as does the entire cassette-style episode replayability. The first time through this game, yeah, you can do the standard trink and spank, Fulton everyone out, and pretty much keep things non-lethal except when fighting the Skulls, to whom lethal slash non-lethal weapons don't matter much. To beat these extra missions though, or to complete all the objectives for every mission, or to S-rank all the missions including the extreme ones, non-lethality cannot be a hard and fast rule. The player needs to develop the strongest machine guns, helicopters, rocket launchers, and fully bond with their buddies if they have any hope of completing the game in full. And to have enough GMP to keep developing those weapons, you have to go back and keep playing the missions you have. It can never be game over. While Venom, Snake, and Ocelot march out to Afghanistan in March of 1984, pretty much everything that follows in this game has a nebulous timeline. While some missions very specifically happen once, such as Hellbound, where you rescue Huey, nearly every other mission here can be a variety of missions Snake was running from 1984 through 1995, give or take a fall of the Soviet Union. The Skulls specifically are a unit that Snake could fight over and over for years and years in a war without end. Destroying comms equipment and extracting VIPs, and then watching as new comms equipment is built and new VIPs sent in all for Snake to extract, there's an untold amount of time passing in the margins of this game. You really are locked in forever war, constantly redeploying to the same battlefields. Who's the client this time? Who are we fighting? The KGB, the CIA, the MPLA, Unita, some random NGOs? At a certain point, it doesn't matter. All of this is to say the game forces the player to become the war criminal if you really want to complete it. If you want all the cassette tapes, if you want all the trophies, if you want to truly be the big boss of Metal Gear Solid V, you have to go full war criminal in Afghanistan and Africa. You must be the bridge between the two big bosses. You're basically doing what Nathan Drake does in every game he's in, but this actually comes with moral cost and gameplay weight. What brings it home is that finish in the mirror, with Kiefer Sutherland saying he's Big Boss and so are you. You are not only the phantom of Big Boss, but Big Boss himself, and specifically the Big Boss who gained notoriety as a warlord. You did this. You, the player. You made our beloved hero the war criminal. 
This stuff gets further sealed with blood in missions like Shining Lights, where you have to go around and execute your own men. Sure, there's a utilitarian component to stopping the disease, but the man who, we, who was seen as an avenging angel of the battlefield, who whisked away pitiable soldiers to be reborn anew in outer heaven, is nothing more than the Grim Reaper, an avatar of death. If Big Boss was made in the moment in which he pulls the trigger on the boss, then he is unmade, perhaps, when he has to repeatedly pull the trigger on his own soldiers. Long story short, this game challenges the power fantasy by denying you the privilege of playing as Big Boss, but in the end, all the villainy and evil associated with the character is necessarily the player's fault. And the medic, the phantom, Venom Snake, is an unwilling participant in this to begin with, hypnotized and kept comatose against his will. Someone who once swore to do no harm becomes a murderer. Just like most people who pick up a random Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty game, transforming them from a real-world accountant into a fictional thief and killer. It shines a light, even in death, on what violent video games are. All this just makes me really wish that uh, David Hayter had delivered all this dialogue in Hockey for Sutherland. Yeah, no, I mean, I think without a doubt... uh, this was, I mean, David Hayter, I just think, is the better voice performer and also yeah. just the better voice of Snake and Big Boss, uh, both of them. Uh, so, I mean, I would have loved to hear his, I, you know, you are big or I am Big Boss and so are you. Like, I'm sure you, we can pay him on cameo maybe to say it, although I think it's kind of a sore spot. The Shining Lights thing, also. Oh, yeah. That line. You'd also get him grunting a lot more as he was doing it because I don't think he yeah. had any Kiefer grunts or, ugh. <clears throat> yeah. I'd also like to hear him. He should have been smoking a cigar while doing that. I think the ultimate thing, although we, we mentioned this before, it would have been really hard to do. It, w- it wouldn't have worked if if um, Hater had been Ichabod at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have given it away. Ishmael. <laughs> but that would be fun. It'd be fun if his voice had crackled through at the end for the man who sold the world tape. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. Um, and, and then it would just make sense that they just wanted to keep it hidden. But yeah, that's, I think, Kojima's star fucking get in the way, as you said before. But I, it would have been uh, the funniest thing that could happen is if uh, he came out and said like now that actually him recasting Solid Snake was a commentary on recasting. <laughs> uh, he'd be lying because as, as I said, he's a huge star fucker. But if he said that, we'd be able to probably do another episode analyzing <laughs> what it all means, right? <laughs> yeah. And that wraps us up for Metal Gear Solid V, the last of our Metal Gear games we had planned to cover. As you know, my time with this podcast is coming to a close as I transition full-time to Middle-Earth and Westeros, but we still want to get two more episodes out to wrap up this whole project. First, our penultimate episode will be a layout of the Metal Gear timeline, which feels appropriate to give you a timeline at the end given how each Metal Gear game does the same. It'll be a one-stop shop for anyone who's curious how the events relate to each other and what exactly happened when. And then our final episode, which I guess metaphorically is the post-credits audio stinger, we will summarize our thoughts about these games, about this podcast of ours, maybe do a couple rankings, and then that will be that. We will retire to Alaska and race our mush dogs. I'm a musher.
That's mission complete for this episode of Podcast Sans Frontiers. Our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support the last three to four episodes of this at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll find me covering The Lord of the Rings. And you can also find me at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, covering A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon, which I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian, and it is no nation we inhabit, but a language. I'm going to make a new one for the last couple. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands. Not over yet, Snake.